Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, state health officials are confirming Georgia's suspected monkeypox case is now confirmed from Emory, Univer- from Emory University and a renowned infectious disease expert will speak with Dr. Carlos Del Rio. He'll join me with more about the viral disease. Also this hour, the Atlanta Bicycle Coalition is now Propel ATL. We'll find out what's on the Mobility Advocacy Group's wish list after city voters approved that $750 million for infrastructure upgrades. Executive Director Rebecca Cerna will be our guest. Important community conversations coming up. But first this, as mentioned, health investigators have confirmed what was Georgia's first suspected case of monkeypox in a patient. Well, that patient was identified last week. The State Department of Public Health is monitoring the person's symptoms and contact tracing. The patient remains in isolation at home. It's the latest among the nearly two dozen other cases experts are watching in states nationwide. Now, monkeypox can spread from person to person through close physical contact. Officials say the disease is highly treatable. And again, we'll speak with Dr. Carlos Del Rio in just a moment about this. In other news, Republican candidates for the 6th Congressional District are outlining their differences on one major election issue right now in 2020, abortion access. With just two weeks to go until Georgia's primary runoffs, the candidates faced off yesterday at the Atlanta Press Club. Jake Evans was asked about a total abortion ban without exceptions. Early in my campaign, I signed the Georgia Life Alliance pledge, and I said the only exception that I do support is to save the life of the mother. Dr. Rich McCormick took a different approach to the question. I don't know of a time where it would be beneficial to kill a baby to save a mother's life. So I I reject that that argument to begin with. I'm 100% pro-life. I don't make exceptions because I don't believe they're contrary to each other. The newly redrawn 6th Congressional District now leans Republican. It includes part of Northeast Cobb, Northern Fulton, and Northern Gwinnett counties. And, of course, the winner of the runoff will take on Democrat Bob Christian in November. You can listen to the debate tonight at 8 on WAB Radio, or you can watch it Sunday morning on WABE-TV, formerly PPA 30. Sticking with the debates, the Democratic runoff race to face Republican Brad Raffensperger for Secretary of State also took place yesterday. State Representative B. Wynn and former State Representative D. Dawkins-Hagler took aim at each other during their Atlanta Press Club debate. Now, both support a move towards hand-marked paper ballots and criticize Georgia's 2021 controversial election law. Dawkins-Hagler says she wants to fight new voting restrictions. Because I believe that the issues we're fighting today make no type of sense. And I thought many of these battles had been won and fought when my grandmother fought them. And now it's very disheartening to watch my granddaughter have to go through the exact same things that my grandmother did. But it's Wynn who says she's best suited to go up against Republicans in November. I have taken on Brad Raffensperger. I am prepared to beat him in November, and I've earned the endorsement of Stacey Abrams, and I will do everything I can to cross the line in November to ensure that we do not elect Brian Kemp or Brad Raffensperger. The runoff election is June 21st. Early voting starts in most places next Monday. Fulton starts on Saturday. Employees at a Starbucks in northwest Atlanta are the latest to vote to unionize. As we hear from Lily Oppenheimer, there were 10 yes votes tallied yesterday and one no. The majority vote to unionize at the Howell Mill Road Starbucks comes during a mass union drive for employees at the coffee giant nationwide. Paige Smith is the lead organizer at Howell Mill Road. When Smith got done celebrating with the rest of the baristas post-union vote, they sat down and talked about what the staff wants in their first new contract. 
a more transparent and specific seniority and merit-like pay raise structure. And there's not a very big pay gap between people who have been with the company for very long and people who have just started. We would also, in the same vein, like to see a specific number in which our pay will go up to reflect the changing cost of living in our area. Smith also says to the one no vote. I understand that the propaganda against the union was very strong. I understand why corporate took the stance they did to try and convince people to vote no. I appreciate that that person still made their voice heard and put in their vote and got their ballot in. Starbucks told WABE in a statement that the company and employees work better together without a union. The National Labor Relations Board oversaw the election. NLRB officials say more than 100 Starbucks nationwide have voted to unionize, with several still pending certification. Lily Oppenheimer, WABE News. And the Atlanta School Board is moving forward with the closure of Thomasville Heights Elementary in southeast Atlanta uh, over the objections of some parents. Martha Dalton reports the board voted 6-2 in favor of the plan last night. Thomasville's closing because a housing project across the street, where several families lived, will soon be demolished. Those students will attend nearby Slater Elementary. Some parents complained they were left out of the decision-making process. Monique Nunnally told board members they ignored concerns of Slater and Thomasville parents while holding several meetings with Midtown parents over a proposed redistricting plan for schools there. Our community has asked for more dialogue about the closure of our Thomasville Heights. I asked last month, the month before, emails, emails, and you all have not come to our neighborhood. I walk it every week. I have not seen you. Thomasville parents have until June 17th to apply for a transfer if they don't want to send their kids to Slater. APS says 62 students will be affected. Martha Dalton, WABE News. And as usual, our note of disclosure, the Atlanta Board of Education holds WABE's broadcast license. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Weeks ago, the World Health Organization held an emergency meeting regarding an outbreak of monkeypox. At the time, there were dozens of confirmed and suspected cases of monkeypox in Europe. Soon afterwards, the CDC held a media briefing as cases began to occur here in the United States. This disease typically occurs in a handful of countries in West and Central Africa. And during the past five years, we've seen a resurgence of monkeypox in Nigeria. The outbreak that's been ongoing for several years in Nigeria has led to nine cases where travelers have returned from Nigeria to their home countries and then later found they had monkeypox. But what's different about what we've been seeing around the world in the past two weeks is that most cases do not have recent travel to Nigeria or to another country where monkeypox would normally be found. That is Captain Jennifer McQuiston. She is the Deputy Director, Division of High Consequence Pathogens and Pathology, speaking there. Now, the Georgia Department of Health has confirmed the state's first suspected case and is now confirmed and brings the nationwide total to 31 cases across 12 states and the District of Columbia. Joining me now with more from Emory University is a renowned epidemiologist. He is our go-to infectious disease expert. He holds so many distinctions that I would take up 20 minutes to read through them all. But again, we welcome Dr. Carlos Del Rio. Thank you so much for taking the time. Pleasure to be with you, Rose. So in preparing for this and been following this and doing a lot of research, and folks may find this surprising, monkeypox is not new. This has been around for a long time. That's correct, Rose. Uh, Monkeypox is is not a new disease, but is, is one of those emerging diseases. And again, a good reminder of the importance of, of global health. This is a, a, a disease caused by a virus 
which is on the same family of the smallpox virus. And mm -hmm. as you know, smallpox was a disease that caused millions of people throughout history to die. Uh, it's a highly contagious disease, but it's also a disease that we as humans have been able to eradicate, right? There was a big campaign after Second World War in which all the countries came together in WHO and they said, we need to eradicate smallpox. It was a disease you could eradicate because it only impacted humans. You had a good vaccine. And a very successful global vaccination campaign was started that eradicated smallpox. And then in the 1970s, there was enough decrease in the number of cases of smallpox that actually smallpox vaccination was stopped in 1972. Mm -hmm. And then by 1980, the WHO said smallpox is not eradicated. And in fact, it has been a disease that we haven't seen now no longer. There are only two stocks of smallpox known to exist in the world, one here at the CDC and the other one in, in Russia. Mm -hmm. And uh, and there was, a re if you remember during 9-11, there was a lot of discussion of whether the smallpox could be released as a bioterrorist agent and whether we need to vaccinate people against smallpox again. But the decision was not to vaccinate against smallpox because we weren't seeing the disease. Now, what happened is around uh, 1958, mm -hmm. uh, the, a virus, an orthopox virus, which is this family of viruses, was isolated from some monkeys in a, in a research facility in Denmark. And that's where the name monkeypox comes from. But this is not a, an infection that normally is in monkeys. In fact, it probably lives in, in small animals and rodents in, in Africa. And it, it goes occasionally infects humans. And in fact, there has been the first human case identified was in the Democratic Republic of Congo in 1970. And since then, monkeypox has been endemic in Central and, and West Africa since then. And in fact, uh, there's a lot of people that think, as, as you reported, you know, in Nigeria, there has been monkeypox uh, really ongoing. And since, not, since 2017, there's over close to 600 reported cases that have occurred. And, uh, and, uh, Occasionally, a case you know gets out of there through travel and comes to the U.S. or to the U.K. or some other country. Uh, some people think that monkeypox actually has resurged mm -hmm. because we stopped smallpox vaccination. So smallpox vaccination probably had some cross reactivity that protected you, and that's important because because if we vaccinate people against against smallpox, we may be able to control the monkeypox outbreak. And it, the it, outbreak it, we're seeing right now is very strange, Rose. We last saw an outbreak in this country in 2003. Mm -hmm. And the outbreak in 2003 was an interesting one in which, you know, 47 cases of uh, patients were infected. And the outbreak was traced by CDC to prairie dogs. And I don't know if you've seen those prairie dogs, but there's this cute little animals that look like, you know, like little rats that stand up. Yeah. And they can be they're, cute. They're, yeah. They're, yeah. And uh, and those prairie dogs were infected uh, from uh, from uh, from uh, Gambian uh, pouch rats that were imported from Africa. And the Gambian pest rats were at the same uh, you know exotic pest shop, and that's where the prairie dogs got infected. And the prairie dogs then then passed over to uh, to to family members, and we saw 47 cases across six states. But that outbreak was contained very effectively. And since then, we've only seen in this country uh, two other cases. One was in 20, uh, 21 uh, in July, and one was in November of 2021. And they were both travelers returning to Nigeria. So again, if you see one case of monkeypox in this country, it's considered an outbreak. Now, I, I want to go back a little bit for so our listeners are not confused, because in terms of transmission, and, and again, it's the same thing that we had with coronavirus. You got different news outlets reporting from what we considered to be credible news outlets who say they're reporting either from the CDC or, or the WHO in terms of transmission, that it can be from if you are in close contact with maybe the fur or the pelt or, or of an animal. Is that true? Are we? I don't want to report something that's not true, but in terms of transmission, how is this virus typically transmitted, Dr. Del Rio? Well, you know, the typical transmission that we know of of this virus occurs in, uh, <clears throat> I would say, in several ways. Number one is because because you have you have been in contact with an animal. For example, in the in the uh, 2003 outbreak, mm -hmm. the many of the infections were traced to back to uh, to people being, uh, you know, sort of licked by the by the infected animal or 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 exposed that way. The, the transmission in general 
can occur in a variety of ways. Uh, you know, some people think that e eating an infected animal can potentially cause transmission. But really, the, the most important way in human to human transmission mm -hmm. occurs because of direct contact with infected lesions. And that is really the, the, the biggest way of, of, of contagion. There probably is also a contagion because you got exposed to, uh, uh, let's say, to uh, fomites or towels or mm -hmm. bedding. And there's also a transmission that, that can occur probably through, through the air, through aerosol, if you're close to somebody who's been, who's infected. But in general, those are, those are, those are the common ways of transmission. It's really that close personal contact that will lead to transmission. Right now, and this was just updated a few moments ago, the CDC is raising the monkeypox alert as global cases have now surpassed 1,000. And again, we're hearing that we haven't heard of any deaths, but what concerns you most in terms of if that number does continue to rise? And I know sometimes folks like you don't like to, to, to get a metric of a number. If it reaches this number of cases, then we should really think about vaccinating folks or even having that con that conversation. What number are you are you looking at? Are you paying attention to in terms of global cases? You know, it's not necessarily the number, Rose. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that the, 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 the rapid increase that we're seeing in the number of cases, that to me is is the 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 most concerning. And when you think about when you think about where we were, you know, it's a uh, it's really mind boggling to think that that as as recent as uh, you know, it, it was it was early uh, it was early uh, early March, you know, mm -hmm. a month uh, early May, a month ago that we had the first case of of COVID of uh, monkeypox identified in the UK, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and now we have. A month later, over a thousand cases across 36 countries. As I said to you before, previous outbreaks, you know, it was a case here and a case there. You just didn't see this very rapid dissemination and also in so many countries. Mm -hmm. And I think the rapid increase in cases and the multiple outbreaks that are occurring to me is the most concerning. This is not behaving in the way that we typically think a smallpox behaves. And could it be because of a change in the virus? Yes, it could be, but I think it's most likely because of change in how humans behave. You know, we're 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 all of a sudden we're we're post-COVID. We're saying it's you know it's over, which is really not true. But people are hanging out together. People are going to to parties. People are you know having close contact with multiple people, and and traveling, and that may be contributing to the spread of the infection. But I think it's it's just spreading in a very different way than we've seen with monkeypox before. Now, earlier I had played that clip from Captain Jennifer McQuiston, and you talked about this, but I want to play another clip because in that media briefing she talked about, and you mentioned it too, how monkeypox and the now eradicated smallpox virus were similar. The United States has a strong preparedness program that ensures we're ready to respond to smallpox, which was declared eradicated in 1980. Because monkeypox and smallpox viruses are related, these tools can now be used for our monkeypox response. There are two vaccines and one antiviral that are approved for smallpox by the FDA. One of those vaccines with the trade name of Genios was approved for the prevention of smallpox and monkeypox disease in adults 18 years of age and older who were determined to be at high risk for smallpox or monkeypox infection. And I wanted to play that for a number of reasons because here we, she's talking about the U.S. is prepared. We are prepared in case we need to have a vaccine. And of course, obviously, when the coronavirus started, as you know, we hadn't even had that conversation. But just do your reflection. How important is it for this message to be out to the public, to the community, that if this does grow, that we have a we have a vaccine available if if we get to that point? Because messaging is so important. And you and I have had all these different conversations about how messaging and public health policy and and what gets caught in the middle. Smart move there. I mean, was that important to include this so early? Yes, I think it's important because this is different than than with with COVID, which was a new agent. This is a, a disease for which we have experienced. This is a disease that we have an available vaccine. It's a, it's. I think uh, the last time I heard, there were thirty six thousand doses of the Janus vaccine in the national stockpile, and the company that produces says that within a month they can have a million doses. We have some antivirals available. So, so it's a very different situation. We we are much better prepared. 
because we were prepared not for monkeypox, but we were, were prepared for smallpox in case that was a bioterrorism agent, right? Mm -hmm. So the reality is, is we know what to do. But, but whenever you have a public health uh, outbreak like this one, I think we need to go to, to the basics. And the basics, Rose, here are information, the three I's. Information, mm -hmm. which is what you're doing, and we need to get more information out into the community, more information out to physicians, to, to the public, uh, to everybody about the disease. We need identification. Mm -hmm. We need to be able to diagnose the cases and we need isolation. So when somebody is, is, is infected, we need to place them in isolation so they don't transmit the disease to others. And in that respect, a testing is very important. And up to this point, testing is still pretty limited. If you're here in the, in the state of, uh, of Georgia, mm -hmm. in order mm -hmm. to, to, in almost every state, in order to get tested, you need to talk to your to, to your local health department. As I said, here in Georgia, you talk to the Georgia Public Health Department and the Public Health Laboratory. They conduct the testing. They conduct a testing which is a a testing sort of a generic testing for orthopox viruses. So all the different pox viruses will be picked up this way. And if you know at this point in time, if your test is positive, is likely monkeypox. But then from there, the test goes to CDC, and then CDC confirms that this is indeed monkeypox. And I think one of the one of the urgencies that we have right now mm -hmm. is to have more testing available. We need to have more local testing in your clinic, in your laboratory, in in the community, because to be otherwise we're creating this 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 roadblocks, this this in which you know you have to go to the state, then you have to go to, to the health department, and that takes a lot of time. So I think one of the urgent needs at this point in time, in order to say that we're fully prepared, is really to have testing available readily available so we can diagnose people because I said identification of persons is going to be critically important to then isolate and then do the contact tracing and do the vaccination and do the different things that need to be done in order to stop this outbreak. And drastically different than obviously with the coronavirus where when people talked about symptoms and they talked about, you know, a high fever and things of that nature. But with monkeypox, there is a, a very identifiable symptom here. And we're talking, as she mentioned, the lesions here. What more can you, you add in terms of if folks, whether they're listening here in Georgia or anywhere else, the symptoms and, and what folks should be on the lookout for here? So the, the classical presentation that we're seeing in, in these cases, and we've seen before, is you start with not feeling well. You'll have some fever, some some muscle aches, some headaches, and then and then you're going to start getting uh, uh, of the rash, and and you're going to also start getting uh, swollen lymph nodes. Lymphadenopathy is mm -hmm. very common. Swollen lymph nodes, and then the rash is going to be. It goes through stages, and it starts with a little 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 bump that then turns into a pustule, uh, a vesicle, a pustule, and then it scabs down and disappears in about two to four weeks. Mm -hmm. And one characteristic about those lesions is they tend to be painful, mm -hmm. especially when they're in the pustular stage. Okay. And so I think, you know, if you start getting multiple skin bumps that look like, you know, I would say they look like, a, like maybe a, initially can look like a sit, right? It looks mm -hmm. like a little abscess on your skin, gotcha. a little bigger than that, mm -hmm. but it's painful and you have a fever and you have lymphadenopathy. I mean, those will be concerning signs and you will need to need to go to the, to the, to, to be evaluated by, by, by a, a trained uh, physician. Uh, there's uh, there's pictures in the internet that you, people can look at, but, but the other thing we need to train is clinicians to be aware of what those lesions are. Mm -hmm. And as I said, they're fairly um, unusual. So, I mean, most people will say, Maybe they say, I don't know what this is, but this doesn't look like something I see, I've seen most of the time. And also, too, Dr. Del Rio, if left untreated, what happens or what could happen? You know, the, 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 the lesions, the rash and the disease uh, evolves and, and, and you get cured within two to four weeks. Uh, I don't think we've seen any deaths during the current outbreak in, in Nigeria, where where the uh this virus, as I said, has been circulating for quite some time. Uh, the they have seen in in about you know uh, the number of cases they've seen they've seen eight deaths. So so 558 cases and, mm -hmm. and about eight deaths so far over the last uh, several years. So the mortality of this virus is not very high. So without treatment, mm -hmm. the uh, the disease uh, tends to evolve uh, uh, well and you get to, tend to recover. We worry in three populations. We worry in children, mm -hmm. we worry in pregnant women, and we worry in immunosuppressed individuals. So in particularly, 
and we can talk about this later, but you know, a lot of the cases here in the US as well as globally have been among, among men who have sex with men. So you worry about somebody who may have HIV because monkeypox in somebody who has uncontrolled HIV could be potentially a very serious infection. That was my next question. You, know, you talk about if someone has a pre-existing condition or, or illness here, and they talked about this in the briefing, then, and you obviously, someone who worked well within the HIV AIDS in, in terms of, of not only studying and researching, but also in, in just bringing awareness about this, then does that also give concern to maybe there needs to be a, a, some messaging among that population, men who have sex with men to, for this, because it is showing up in mostly men who have sex with men. And also, according to the CDC in that media briefing, these lesions were also occurring around their their genitals and other areas. That campaign, that awareness, we need to get that word out. Uh, we definitely do. And I think, you know, yes, we, we need to follow the, the science. And what we're seeing right now, Rose, is... We're seeing uh, the, the the vast majority of cases are occurring among men with, who have sex with men, but that does not mean that this disease will be limited to men who have sex sure. with men. And we need to avoid stigmatizing, and we need to avoid uh, making wrong associations there, right? Because it would really create. But this, uh, see, that's the problem—not the problem. But I'm glad you said that because then you listened to the CDC in that media briefing, and they talked about that. So. I mean, well, again, you, you need to realize that that what what we think is going on is that you, you have a lot of intimate contact. And and when you have a lot of it's probably this virus is probably being transmitted among men who have sex with men through sexual activity and through sexual networks. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it's a sexually transmitted infection. It's probably that close skin to skin contact that is leading to, to the infection. But I think, you know, uh, what we need to to. To, to really emphasize is we need to educate the, the, the community. We need to educate uh, men who have sex with men, and we need to be sure that that we get them quickly into care, get diagnosed instead of, of, of not, because we need to avoid driving them away from health services mm-hmm. and, and, and making them, uh, you know, sort of stigmatized in such a way that they're not going to be uh, coming in for care. So at the end of the day, it's really, I mean, this reminds me about, the, about HIV, working with the community, working with 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 the affected community is going to be critical in us responding appropriately to this to this uh, outbreak. I have a question from a listener who says I'd like to know if Dr. Del Rio has advice for how local health agencies can effectively communicate the seriousness of monkeypox to people who are likely weary of covid messaging and precautions to begin with. Well, you know, I think I think it, it's 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 giving the the right education, right? I think, mm-hmm. as I said, we need to to, to tell people uh, what the uh, uh, what the symptoms are, what the presentations are. We need to tell people about you know the risk of human to human transmission. You know, how do you get infected? We need to talk to uh, you know to uh, you know you you probably don't want to be you know. Uh, touching lesions of somebody's skin, right? Mm-hmm. If somebody has lesions like this, uh, don't touch them. Uh, put gloves on mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. and be careful about 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 uh, you know uh, you know skin to skin contact with an impact affected lesion. I think you know among impacted communities, um, uh, among everybody. I mean, examine your body regularly, right? If you have a a a pustule appears in your genitals, uh, you need to pay attention and say, you know, I need to I need to have this looked at. I need to to be to be careful about what's happening here and and be sure that I seek medical attention. So we need to really facilitate access to care and medical attention to people. And as a researcher, as a scientist, Dr. Del Rio, what questions have you been mostly concerned with in terms of that you're watching in terms of this, whether it's the origins? But what are you racing to understand about this, this latest outbreak? Well, I think I think one of the things that is going to be very important for us to understand, Rose, is if indeed the uh, uh, the small the smallpox vaccination has any impact. When we had the outbreak in 2003, there was a father who had been vaccinated against smallpox. He only had very few lesions. Then there was a mother that hadn't been vaccinated against smallpox because he was younger. Mm-hmm. Basically, if you're over the age of 52, you've been vaccinated against smallpox. If you're under the age of 52, you have not. And that woman had more severe disease, and then their, their, their small child had very severe disease. 
So I think we need to understand uh, how much protection you get from smallpox. And again, you know, those of us that were vaccinated against smallpox, the last vaccination was in 1972. Mm-hmm. 1972 is a long time ago, right? It's, it's 52 years ago. So I don't know how much immunity we have left from those smallpox vaccinations we had mm. many, many years ago. So we also need to understand if the if the if the available if the antibodies present, if their immune response that we have from that prior smallpox vaccination is is making any impact and is really protecting people or not anymore. Mm. Uh, we also need to understand if we start vaccinating people today. And I, I think we need to really start doing the contact tracing and start vaccinating people. I, I have not seen data from CDC saying, you know, we hear they have now, I think it's 31 cases reported in our country. Mm, yeah. yeah. I mean, I hope, they're, I hope they're doing the contact tracing and I would love to hear, look, as a result of those 31 cases, we identified, you know, 200 contacts and we have vaccinating them because we need to know if those, that is indeed stopping the outbreak. We need to move very quickly because as you know, as more cases occur and most transmission occurs, more infections are going to happen. Mm-hmm. One of the things mm-hmm. that I need to understand, we need to understand is what's called, I'm going to use a term that we used before in COVID, which is called the r not right? The transmission potential. Mm-hmm. In the past, in, in monkeypox, we have typically said that monkeypox has an r not of under one. So it rarely transmits, it rarely causes, you know, huge epidemics. But if the r not of this outbreak is higher than one, we, if we don't stop it quickly, at some point in time, it's going to be very hard to stop it. So we need to really mobilize public health quickly uh, and try to stop it very, very soon. We cannot afford having more cases uh, because it's going to be at some point in time, it's going to get out of out of control. And then we need to and then we need to understand the the the, the use of drugs to treat this. Right. Mm-hmm. We we heard from the clip there. There's available medications. We have we have two available drugs that have been have been used for for that that are available for treatment and 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 we need to understand uh, if they are indeed uh, effective and how they're being deployed and how we're using them because at this point in time I have not heard any of uh, any cases reporting their use and their effectiveness in treating mm-hmm. this patient I want to end with this because we went through this again with the coronavirus in terms of alert levels and messaging because the CDC just as of yesterday has put it on alert to level two. And I believe you correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, level three would mean uh, caution against non, what they call non-essential traveling. Correct. Is that a level three caution against non-essential travel Where alert level two? How important is it? Again, I just want you to reiterate because you're a person that's in this space messaging and important messaging to people about this, this viral disease, because when it gets to a level three and I don't know what it takes to get to a, a level alert three, then you're going to have a lot, as you know, we went through this, you're going to have a lot of panic and then then nations start making policies and then all of a sudden it's it's a whole new thing. So, you know, again, you say you don't like to look at numbers, but for it to go from a, a, a level two to a level three, which is the high, highest level alert, then, you know, what are you hoping then we don't get to? Numbers have to mean something in here, Dr. Darrell. You, you don't think if we get to... 10,000 global cases, that's that's enough? Or I think our listeners, yeah, that'll be, go ahead. That'll be, that'll be way too many. I mean, I'm concerned about 1,000 cases right now. Well, I mean, we've, we've surpassed 1,000 globally. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, that's what I'm saying. I'm concerned today. I don't need to wait any longer. That's why I think that there needs to be rapid global mobilization to control this outbreak. It's, it's not just sitting in the sidelines observing it. We really need to mobilize resources and public health to control this outbreak because we can we should be able to control this outbreak. We know how to prevent transmission. We have a vaccine that we can use. We have, you know, public health infrastructure. We, we need to, to rapidly respond and do the things that need to be done. And, and, and as opposed to just, uh, you know, waiting to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point in time, uh, we already have way too many cases and this is not feeling comfortable to me. As I said, in the past, we had one case here, one case there. And it didn't go beyond that. Mm-hmm. The way these cases are increasing this time around, it's it's very concerning, and it's something that I think requires uh, a mobilization of resources and rapid action. All right. I remember you saying that a couple of years ago, and so many other experts saying that too. As always, we appreciate you taking the time, giving so much information. We appreciate it from Emory University. 
infectious disease expert, Dr. Carlos Del Rio. He is our go-to expert on this. Thank you so much, Dr. Del Rio. We appreciate it. You see the emails. Folks have more questions, but I'm like, <laughs> they know how to reach you on Twitter. Good to see you, Rose. Thank you so much. All right, now. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Here's a question. What's your favorite Atlanta neighborhood or path to bike through? Now, producer Daniel Razel says he enjoys the neighborhoods near Midtown High, which is formerly Grady High School, and downtown. Engineer Kevin Rinker, well, he'll bike anywhere. I myself enjoy Freedom Parkway and will one day attempt that massive hill inside Lionel Hampton Park. And Closer Look intern Lennox suggested... If you're adventurous, try biking on DeKalb Avenue. Now, Lennox has a wicked sense of humor. We're all learning. Uh, But Atlanta has a diverse and robust biking community. We know that. So when it comes to infrastructure planning and mobility initiatives, well, we're always talking about ways to improve and include biking. For years, the organization called Atlanta Bicycle Coalition has advocated for not only safer streets, but various inclusion efforts for bikers. Now the nonprofit is called Propel ATL. Their mission is not changing that much. So let's welcome back to the program and still executive director, Rebecca Cerna. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. It's always a real pleasure to talk with you. You know, I was telling the Closer Look team that we've had many, many conversations. And I remember, well, this was years ago, one of the first questions I asked you years ago was to to assess Atlanta being a bike-friendly city. Now, that was years ago. So I'm going to ask you now, how would you chart progress and and then the continued challenges? Well, I'd say that other cities have made so much more progress that it's almost flattened out whatever strides we've made, with some notable exceptions, of course. You know, we have a much more robust trail network than we did when we first started talking, as you referenced in the intro. Um, But it just feels like Atlanta has not kept up with some of the progress that we're seeing in other cities. Really? I thought you were going to give me like we've gone from a a D minus to a B minus, but uh... we've got great inflation going on over (laughs) here. We got to we got to get some extra credit going. Well, let me ask you this. Can you what other city you think would be and I don't want to use the word perfect model, Rebecca, but what other city do you think really has an, an inclusionary mobility and and, trans, and transit plan that includes biking as part of the mix there. Can you can you cite a couple? Yeah, I always like to look to the not so usual suspects. I think we've all heard enough about European cities so that are some kind of biking blissful haven. Um, so I've learned a lot from living in Colombia in Latin America in Bogota for a year really? and um, took inspiration from their open streets initiative where they have a million people come out every Sunday and walk and bike and dance in the street. And it really shifts the dynamic of power on the streets, you know, because I think in the US we've really given over ownership of the streets to people behind the wheel of a vehicle and yeah vehicles are great for getting places but you know we have other kind of vehicles out there today um so cities like bogota and other cities in latin america and asia um, and other world cities i think are doing a lot more um, than maybe a lot of american cities are um, in integrating different ways of getting around because a lot of people don't care how they get around they just want to get there and they want to feel good while they're doing it what do you say to folks that say we understand the initiative, but when you look at Atlanta, the city of Atlanta, okay, proper city of Atlanta, and its its infrastructure in terms of how the streets are designed, the way the sidewalks are, you can't put a bike lane on every street, although I'm not saying this is what some people say, you can't put a bike lane on every street, that infrastructure-wise, it's just not, the city will only be able to get so far in terms of its bicycle friendliness. Do you buy that? It's all a choice. You know, um, our city planners and leaders decided in the 40s and 50s to intentionally place highways in black neighborhoods and look at the damage that caused and the tremendous displacement um, that we're still dealing with and have, I think, some opportunities to maybe start to rebuild some of that through the federal infrastructure funding. Um, But, you know, it's it's all a choice in how we choose to use our streets. And um, at the end of the day, we're making these choices every day. We have we have tons of transportation uh, funding available to us, we're going to have to fix the crumbling infrastructure. Glad you brought up sidewalks mm-hmm. because um, that is, I think, probably the top priority for Atlanta. We haven't invested in our sidewalks at all for years. 
Well, and again, I know I mean, people get mad because they email me when I talk about, particularly on on this, on certain side of the city, south southwest side of the city, where there are neighborhoods who just do do not have sidewalks, and kids trying to catch the school bus, and and folks in, in our older populations that live over there trying to catch martyr, not even a bus stop, not even a sidewalk. So if y'all want me to stop talking about that, then you know. I don't know what to do. Now, the city has acknowledged that it's been over budget and behind schedule on many of the original T-SPLOS projects. And I said this before. I've lived here for a long time, and the T-SPLOS initiatives come on a ballot, uh, you know, and then you wonder, okay, well, <laughs> what's actually happening? City council members have announced some measures to address accountability going forward. What would you all at, at Propel ATL like to see make sure that these funds are used appropriately and that there's equity involved. Absolutely. Yeah, we were really um, enthusiastic about the safeguards that council adopted. I think it's always good to see people learning from past experiences that we all learned a lot, unfortunately, from the Renew Atlanta and T-SPLOST in the last go round. So I think what we want to see is uh, continuous conversation. Let's not forget about these projects Mm -hmm. because there are a lot of projects on the last T-SPLOST and bond that we continue to follow and push for um, and that need that continued advocacy really from the grassroots level. So we encourage people to get involved in their neighborhood transportation committees. If you don't have one, we'll help you start one. Um, We have a group called Community Advocates Network that meets and it's just bringing people together that are involved at that neighborhood level, because that's really where the accountability starts from, from people going, hey, what's going on with my street? Mm -hmm. I live on the street. I'm going to continue to pay attention to this. I'm not going to forget whether it takes five or six or seven years. Rebecca, how important is that? Because in each community and it's the priorities might be different. You know, if you live over in no fourth ward, you know, the priorities, what you want may be very, very drastically different than, let's say, a a community over on the southwest side or on the west side of Atlanta. So how important is it to have then these smaller pockets of groups working together? I think it's essential because we can learn from each other. Um, A lot of times what you'll see is uh, multiple neighborhoods along an existing high injury network street, one of the um, streets where the vast majority of people are getting killed um, in transit. are hearing different things or they're not aware of a project that maybe could be extended to connect their neighborhood and benefit the safety of their residents. Because the cross thread across all these communities, and we talk to uh, community members all over the city and a lot of different neighborhoods and housing types and situations is they want to be safe. They want their kids to be safe. They want their grandparents to be safe. Um, so for example, we see a ton of traffic calming requests stop signs, any other kind of thing that can mm-hmm. slow people down. Um, and those are really flowing in from all over the city. So, you know, while the specific um, type of infrastructure that needs to happen on your street may vary from street to street or neighborhood to neighborhood, that cross thread of safety and that desire for, for safe travel is pretty universal. Early on in the pandemic, when you all were ABC, uh, you took a stance to support the city of Atlanta and in, in not installing these safer street infrastructure because there were fewer drivers on the road. I mean, that we understood that it was a pandemic that had just started. But a lot of other cities did take the opportunity, you know, while there were fewer drivers on the road to fix, you know, potholes and create sidewalks and all that. Do you all, what went into that decision? And in hindsight, do you all think maybe you should have been, first of all, back up. Tell me about that decision. What went into that decision for you all? I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of that decision. The stance that we took was against implementing what they were calling slow streets, which was prohibiting anything except local traffic from streets during the pandemic when we knew so little. And, you know, the intention behind people who wanted this was good. They wanted more space to be able to spread out. And again, we knew so little. But when we saw what slow streets were looking like, it was looking like excluding people and preventing people from driving down streets without having the time or the bandwidth to do any kind of community engagement, mm-hmm. especially in communities that were feeling the most stress from the pandemic, mm-hmm. being primarily black and brown immigrant communities, people um, that had essential jobs. And in Atlanta, a lot of people with essential jobs rely on driving. Mm-hmm. So we just felt like at that point in the pandemic, when people were calling for slow streets specifically, that was not the time or the method. Now, we have never been against safer street infrastructure. Of course. Never, ever, ever. And we never will be against that. So I think there were some misunderstandings uh, that people 
had about our stance. Well, let's see, now you came on and you cleared it up. And I remember meeting you off the belt line early on in the pandemic because we, everybody and their cousin, everybody had a bike. Boy, everybody was rushing to the store getting bikes. The belt line would look like the Tour de France. It was just crazy. So everyone was out there biking. And you know what? It was it was kind of cool. What have you noticed, though, since, you know, obviously we've turned a huge corner in the pandemic? Are you still seeing folks understanding now that, you know what? Biking is and really should be a part of our overall initiatives and approach when it comes to mobility and transit because we had to rely on using bikes for some of us and it's not so bad. So you hope that momentum continues or is it slowing? We're seeing a lot of people continuing to ride bikes or do whatever they did to get around during the pandemic. Um, But we're also seeing a lot of people speeding. Um, So the percentage of pedestrians who were killed in 2021 compared with 2020, Mm -hmm. it went up 150%. That's city of Atlanta? That's in the city of Atlanta. So we're really um, concerned about that. And just everywhere we go, we hear um, neighborhood folks saying people are speeding down our residential streets. And, you know, we're, we're really, really concerned about that's where all the stop sign traffic calming requests are coming from. Um, So unfortunately, that is a side effect where I think people got used to the um, traffic being less during the pandemic and um, adopted some driving behaviors that are really unsafe. And, you know, they're really damaging families. We talked to family members. Um, I talked to a woman whose sister was killed crossing the street recently, and it's heartbreaking. And I just don't think people take that into account. You know, there's a joy to this active transportation um, that I think the name Propel really captures. But we also have the other side of that, which is we have to propel the city forward when it comes to creating safe streets. Well, Rebecca, we've talked about this, too. And I've had this conversation with folks when it comes to talking about public transportation, people's perception, people's mindset around who's taking public transportation and why would I take public transportation? It's the same thing when it comes to the whole and it's beyond that, That and I'm not calling it goofy, but the whole touchy-feely, share the road. Because let's be really clear, everybody don't want to share the road. And I was telling my, I remember seeing folks with, I saw some folks with a shirt that said, I do not want to share the road. And a, a very disturbing image of, of someone who had looked like they had been hit, they were riding their bike. It's mindset. How do you, you get to change people's mindset? Because there are some folks like, the roads are made for cars and buses and therefore, and bikes should just, I mean, there are folks that believe that. I'm not making this up. You know that. Yeah. I think a lot of it is is culture and it's the stories we tell each other. And uh, something we're working on right now is a storytelling project to tell the stories of family members who are left behind. They lost a loved one due to someone, you know, maybe being unattentive behind the wheel or going too fast. Um, and I think if we can hold lift, hold lift up those family members' stories, Um, then that can start to spark a change. It's happened in other countries. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that common thread, going back to people wanting their own street to be safe, if you can start to have a little bit more empathy for someone, Mm -hmm. a mother who's lost a a child. Yeah, because um, there are other neighborhoods besides yours. So before I get an email, beyond a name and logo change, what does Propel ATL mean now for the organization in terms of what you're doing? Yeah, it was really the change was sparked and and started happening a couple of years ago when we learned about the high injury network and the um, disproportionate impact that those streets have um, and the fact that they're concentrated in the communities that are most affected by racial injustices. So it was really eye-opening and we started to shift towards safe streets advocacy at the time. We expanded our mission in 2019 to add in advocacy for people walking and riding transit then we merged with PEDS, a pedestrian safety organization, um, and then finally changed our name to Propel to kind of capture all of this and tie it together. And it's 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 a little it's kind of it's a little bit more hip. <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever accused me of that before. So Atlanta Bicycle <laughs> Coalition. I mean, I'm looking at a T-shirt like Atlanta Bicycle Coalition Propel ATL. I mean, it looks it's, it's much better. We do have T-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you you this as we're going to wrap up, because we've been talking about leadership and and the city efforts and all of this. Well, right now, the city of Atlanta has several high profile vacancies, including within the city planning department and soon their department of transportation. What are you hoping in terms of who comes in to fill those roles? What kind of person would you like to see in terms of their vision? And especially if it includes or should include, you know, pedestrians and, and folk, you know, folks on bikes. Yeah, I always um, 
took heart to see our um, previous planning commissioner riding his bike down Peachtree Street, waving at everybody. Um, so I think someone who uses sustainable transportation, who rides the bus, who understands what that is, who walks, who understands what it's like to cross the street in Atlanta, mm-hmm. um, who understands um, the challenges that people biking and using scooters face, and also just the joy inherent in these different types of transportation. So someone who gets it on that personal level. Um, and then we're really looking for a continued commitment to the Vision Zero policy of trying to get to zero traffic deaths, zero serious injuries, mm-hmm. um, because the city is finally embarking on that action plan for Vision Zero. And it's really a key point. So we need a leader that's going to continue to prioritize that and really make an even bigger splash with it, um, make a bigger deal about it and help everybody understand that this is something that you hope it never affects your life or someone that you care about. But the reality is um, that it could. And so let's change our streets and, and change the way we get around so that it doesn't have to. And listener sends me an email. Rose, aren't you anti-scooter? I am not anti-scooter. I'm not anti-scooter. I'm I'm pro collaboration. <laughs> Except for the share the road t-shirts, you don't like those. <laughs> I do not like those. That no, I do not like the t-shirts that say I refuse to share the road um, because that's just ridiculous. But anyway, uh, Rebecca, <laughs> finally, my final question to you: What is your favorite neighborhood or path to bike through or on? I'm going to take that question and tell you about my favorite bus route. It's okay. the 21 Memorial Drive, and I love it because it comes pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. We're still on Saturday service right now, but back before those days, I could just walk out there, catch it, mm-hmm. um, and get all the way downtown to, to Five Points in a straight shot. Didn't have to think about it too hard, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of places to stop along the way. So my kids write that, and they know that's how you get to the movie theater. That's how you get to, to downtown. All right. My, my producer... Daniel whispering in my ear that that's a good one. My producer Daniel is very pro bike, and and I should note I'll make an announcement here. I Rose Scott am looking for a new bike. Just want everybody to know that that's big news here. <laughs> you should definitely go to one of our many local bike shops because we have some great ones in Atlanta. Um, and then Rose, we're going to get you into one of our our free bike classes. I know we are. Well, here's the thing. I am not riding on the street just yet. That's fine. <laughs> I'm just. You know, but I and, and here's the other thing, too. I, I want an e-bike. Is that bad? No, that's great. I love e-bikes. They okay. just flatten out the hills. You can get all over without worrying about being all sweaty. Um, you know, people like what they like, but I think e-bikes have definitely a place in the bike ecosystem. And in our classes, we also teach you how to take your bike on MARTA because you can put it on the bus, put it on the train, and that expands your horizons even more. All right. So, see, I'm ready. I'm ready to be part of the solution and not the problem as a journalist. I appreciate that. Uh-huh. Rebecca Cern is Executive Director of Propel ATL, formerly Atlanta Bicycle Coalition. As always, good conversation. I appreciate it, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm getting a bike. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel, who's also our engineer for today. As always, you can catch a rebroadcast of Closer Look tonight at 7 p.m. And as always, you know what? We have a podcast. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.